family, wonderful singing, love that song. What a joy that is to sing together in uh, unison. And uh, we sing that as if we, and I know we are, looking forward to seeing that together in glory. John chapter 16, John chapter 16. We have spent some time over the last couple of weeks looking at, in an expository fashion, the topic of persecution. Jesus is preparing the disciples for what he knows they are going to face after his death, burial, and resurrection and his ascension up into glory. And again, in the unity of Scripture and the preservation of God's word, we are also, as his disciples, facing some measure of persecution. And we are seeing that increase here in America in ways that we never thought we would ever see. We all experience some measure of persecution just for being a Bible-believing Christian, just for standing up for what is right, just for trying to live a holy life, just for being separated from the world, just for being a righteous individual. Not perfect. None of us are perfect. But just by loving the Lord and trying to please the Lord with our lives, we're going to run into some measure of resistance. And as our culture has pushed God out to the fringes of society, as we have now become a post-Christian nation in many respects, we have to expect persecution. And again, we go back to John 15 and verse 18. If the world hate you, ye know that it hated me before it hated you. So we looked at the expectation of persecution. It is to be expected. It is going to happen in some way, shape, or form. And then we looked at the end of excuses for the persecutors. They have no more excuse. Having rejected the prophets, having rejected the word of God, having rejected the law of God, now having rejected the very Son of God, walking in their midst, performing miracles in their very presence, preaching them to them the truth in their very presence, their excuses are gone. From general revelation to special revelation, their excuses have come to an end. And then we looked at the enduring help of the Holy Spirit. The enduring help of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus will again bring this topic back up In our message today, as we look at John 16, we see that Christ is preparing his disciples. You're going to face persecution. There are going to be some hard times, but I will still be with you. The ministry of the Holy Spirit is so important. The Holy Spirit is probably the person of the Trinity who has been most misrepresented and mischaracterized than any person of the Trinity. We know God is one God in three persons, one essence, three persons, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. But there's so much misunderstanding regarding the Holy Spirit. We'll look at some more of the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the message today. But we saw at the end of chapter 15 the enduring help of the Holy Spirit. 
Going back to chapter 15 and verse 26. But when the comforters come, whom I will send unto you from the Father, even the Spirit of truth, which proceedeth from the Father, he shall testify of me. And ye also shall bear witness, because, because ye have been with me from the beginning. Now, I know we have a chapter division, but we understand that the chapter and verse divisions are not inspired. Okay, the, the Word of God is the inspired Word of God. God breathe. The chapter and the verse divisions uh, were added later for organization, for, for help. So we really continue this discourse from Jesus to his disciples into chapter 16 and verse number 1. These things, he says, have I spoken unto you that ye should not be offended. Again, he's reminding them of the expectation of persecution. But he's now going to give them some specific experiences of the persecution. So he continues in verse 2. They shall put you out of the synagogues. Yea, the time cometh that whosoever killeth you will think that he doeth God service. One of the experiences that they would face in the persecution is they'll be cast out of the synagogue. This would be a tragic consequence from a Jewish perspective because the synagogue was more than just a place of worship. It was the center of their community. It was the center of their social organization. To be cast out of the synagogue would be to be cut off from society, from family and friends. This would be a huge sacrifice for the apostles, for the disciples. It would be part of that denying themselves, taking up their cross and following him. But he was preparing them for that day so that they would be expecting and they would be ready with the enduring help of the Holy Spirit for when they experienced even specific persecution that would result in them being cast out of the synagogue and all of the social consequences that would come with it. But again, it is better to have the Lord. It is, it is better to gain the Lord than to gain this world and lose one's soul. And we talked about this a little bit even in previous messages. And as we looked at a, another parallel passage last week about giving up houses and lands and mothers and fathers and brothers and sisters, but there is eternal value in suffering for Christ. There is eternal value in living a godly life, even though it may bring persecution. Because this world is temporary. And what this world has to offer is passing away. But he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. Another experience specific of their persecution could be that they would be killed. He knows, and of course Jesus is saying, and whosoever killeth you will think that he doeth God service. We know that from the biblical and historical record, that most, if not all, of the disciples died a martyr's death. Paul would at one time, as Saul, be actually taking the, the coats of the people who were stoning Stephen. Paul was, as Saul, a murderer, uh, at least a conspirator to, to murder, leading in the persecution of Christians. Some of the Early Christians, Paul, Saul, had their blood on his hands. Yet God gloriously saved him. 
changed his name to Paul, and he became one of the greatest apostles. But the persecution, the experience of persecution, specifically would involve being cast out of the synagogue and dying a martyr's death. But again, Christ does not leave them there. You know how it is sometimes. We have the bad news and we have the good news. And I don't know about you. When someone comes to you and says, well, I have good news and I have bad news. You know, you go to the repair shop and you hear the mechanic on the other side say, well, I have some good news and I have some bad news. Now, I tend to be more pessimistic. I have to work on that. But I think that an optimist is just a pessimist in denial. But anyway, (laughs) an optimist, it's good to be optimistic, but you can be extreme on the optimistic side and be a denier of reality. At the same time, you can be so pessimistic that you are depressing and despondent and discouraged, and you're like the Peanuts character with the cloud over his head. That's not way, we're not to be on either extreme. Um, We're to be biblical realists, if I can say it that way. I'm not trying to coin a new term. But you know how it is, you go to the mechanic, you go to the repair shop, and you have the good news and you have the bad news. And I don't know about you, but I want to hear the the bad news first. I want to have the good news afterward, because the bad news is going to kind of sour my mood, maybe. I'm going to see that bill, or I'm going to see whatever the repair is going to be, and I want to hear the good news Afterward, Maybe the good news is you're just going to have to donate it to charity because the vehicle is done. I don't know. Um, But the good news and the bad news. And Jesus is saying, yes, there is some negativity here. There is some cause for some pessimism in a sense, humanly speaking. And again, if I can go on just a little bit of a rabbit trail here, we, we have to understand that preaching... Teaching of the Bible, scriptural messages, are are not always just candy-coated cotton candy. There there, there has to be sometimes hard truths, tough love. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering and doctrine. And Jesus exemplified that. He modeled that. He told the truth. You may die. As a matter of fact, you will be killed. And there will be people who will do so saying that they are honoring God for murdering you. You will be cast out of the synagogue. But Christ always gave them hope, gives us hope. And he, in chapter 15, at the end of the chapter, as he talked about persecution, he mentions the enduring help of the Holy Spirit. And once again, we come down to chapter 16. We go to verse 3, and then we'll lead into verse 5 from our scripture reading earlier, and we'll see the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Verse number three, And these things will they do unto you, because they have not known the Father nor me. Again, they hate me, they hate the Father, so they are going to hate you. They do not know the Father, they will not accept me as their Savior, so they will do these things. Verse four, but these things have I told you that when the time shall come, ye may you may or ye may remember that I told you of them. And these things I said not unto you at the beginning, because I was with you. He's just simply saying, reminding them that he is going to go away. He has told them already about his death, burial, and his resurrection. They are not fully grasping, fully understanding everything that he is trying to tell them. 
and trying to prepare them for. And we're like that. I know that I can be hard-headed sometimes about things. I can get brain lock, brain freeze, whatever you want to call it. And I just don't, I just don't get it. I just, it just doesn't sink in. And then later on, it clicks. The light bulb comes on. This is, this is a really uh, exciting thing as a, as a preacher, as a teacher. If you've ever been in a teaching or, or a preaching kind of situation, and the light bulb comes on with the students, they get it. They grasp it. And it clicks. And, it, and for the disciples, a lot of that won't happen until after the resurrection and the ascension of Christ. And Jesus is saying, I'm saying these things now. You need these things now. I know that you will not fully comprehend and understand them until later, but you will remember these things. And we need good memories when it comes to the work of God, to the word of God, to the promises, the commands, the principles of God's word, because we are forgetful hearers. If we don't think that we have photographic memories, which we don't, if we think that we can just remember everything, oh, I learned that 25 years ago when I was in Sunday school. I don't need to come to church anymore because I learned that when I was five. I don't know about you, but I need the same lessons taught to me over and over and over and over and over again. We are prone to wander. We are forgetful hearers. In Hebrews, in the book of Hebrews, we often see the writer by the inspiration of God speaking to those Jewish believers, and some of them were non-believers, and speaking to them as forgetful hearers. How often we forget the simple truths, the basics. Again, I use a sports illustration, but there are so many times that coaches have to come back to the basics. You're not throwing the ball right. You're not dribbling right. You're trying to chuck threes. You're trying to hit home runs and grand slams every time you come to the plate. You're trying to spike the ball every time you come to the net. There's fundamentals. There, there are basics. We've got to come back to the basics. Remember the simple truths. And so many times in the Christian life, we get so busy and we have so many things and there's so much and there's stress and there's pressure and I've got to do this and I've got to do that and I've got to... Go here, and I got to meet this appointment. I got, and before long, church begins to disappear, and Bible reading begins to disappear. And even when we are busy doing the things of the Lord, we can get forgetful, forgetful of the things of God, the things that we need to remember that God has prepared for us that we need in that moment. And there would be a time as Christ would rise from the dead, and as He would ascend up into glory, and they would remember. These things, Jesus had prepared them, and it would help them. And as the person of the Trinity, the second person of the Trinity, as Jesus Christ ascended up into glory, seated at the right hand of the throne of God, he would give them the Holy Spirit to help them remember these things. The Holy Spirit would be their Emmanuel God with us, indwelling them as believers to minister to them. Because he knew that they would need the help. He knew that we would need the help. I don't know about you, but I need the help. Life gets hard. Life has, full of, life has pressure. Life has tribulations. Life has stress. Life has people. We need help, don't we? Because we are a people. And then there are other people that we have to minister to. That we have to love. Even our enemies. 
And we have to do good to them that hate us. And we have to return good for evil. We have to build relationships. And I'm not talking about likes and follows and hearts and emojis. I'm talking about real, authentic, personal relationships. And isn't it just like our God? To give us the person of the Holy Spirit. A personal relationship with our God through the person of the Holy Spirit. Through Jesus Christ, yes. But the ministry of the Holy Spirit is to help us, to come alongside us, to be that paraclete. We go down to verse number five, but now I go my way to him that sent me. And none of you asketh me, whither goest thou? But because I have said these things unto you, sorrow hath filled your heart. He's getting their attention. He's getting them to refocus on what he's trying to tell them. He says, you aren't, you're not even asking me, whither goest thou? Where are you going? They had asked that before in chapter 14, the early part of chapter 14, when Thomas spoke up. No one speaks up here. It's as if the disciples, we don't have an inspired account of what the disciples were doing right at that moment. But in our mind's eye, we, we can imagine they're probably talking amongst themselves. They're probably whispering amongst themselves. What is he talking about? What is he? We're going to be persecuted. We're going to go to the synagogue and we're going to get cast out. We're going to die. Are you going to die first? How are you going to die? What about? I can only imagine their curiosity. They're, 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 they're human. They're thinking what's, what's going on. And I can just imagine them. Maybe they're in the Garden of Gethsemane by now. Maybe they're walking. Maybe they're seated there. And Jesus is getting ready to go and, and, and to pray after uh, he finishes this sermon, this discourse. And the disciples, they seem distracted. And again, I can't help but think of the human side and, and my own distractions that I have in life. And Jesus is trying to get my attention. I, I need to be paying attention to the word of God. I need to be listening to what God has for me. And I'm, I'm, I'm too distracted. I'm too busy wondering. And, and our minds begin to wander. And we become worry warts and we become fretters instead of listening and trusting and hearing what God has for us. And it's almost as if Jesus is trying to say, quit being so preoccupied with all these things that I'm telling you and imagining what might happen and what it's going to look like and how it's all going to work out. I want you to listen. I have a truth for you. I have the Holy Spirit who will minister to you. Verse number seven, nevertheless I, tell, nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is expedient for you that I go away. Pause there for a moment in our reading. It is expedient. It is best. Because if Christ doesn't go to the cross and die, and if he doesn't rise from the dead, then our faith is in vain. We have no hope. There's no atonement. There's no salvation there's no justification, there's no propitiation, there's no sanctification. It is expedient, it is best for you that I go away. Continuing in verse number 7. For if I go not away, the Comforter will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send him unto you. Another reason it is expedient is because the Comforter will come. The paraclete, the ministry of the Holy Spirit will be new and full in a way that has not been 
revealed as of yet? Did the Old Testament function? Did the third person of the Trinity function in the Old Testament? Yes. The Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. The plural pronouns in the creation account speak of the Trinity. The Holy Spirit was active in eternity past. He is eternal. He is a person. The Holy Spirit is not an emotion. I've said this, I know, many times, but the Holy Spirit is not a mystical presence like a force. Or His ministry can only be real if we get into a certain mood, if we have certain external stimulations to get us to a point where then we can really feel the Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not a transcendental state of meditation where we open our minds and we empty our minds and then the Holy Spirit can work. No, that's dangerous. When we get into that mysticism and that new age spiritism and we're emptying our minds. I can't remember, I don't know if I'll quote it exactly the way my dad did, but he said some people are so empty-minded their brains fall out. And we're not ever told to do that. We're to have sound minds. We're to have the mind of Christ. We're, we're not to have a carnal mind. God never operates. I understand that some people have mental or physical disabilities. Uh, an actual biological issue with brain function due to an accident or genetics or whatever the case may be. But God has given us a mind to receive his truth, to make decisions logically and rationally that will honor the Lord based upon the truth of the word of God and the Holy Spirit. He is there to guide us into the truth. His ministry is as the third person of the Trinity. He's not some mystical force, some mystical presence, some transcendental meditation. His ministry is not something that can only be reached by getting into a certain mood or a certain mindset. He is the comforter. He is the paraclete. Literally, that word comforter is that word paraclete or parakletos. don't know how to pronounce it correctly, but it means counselor advocate, helper, even used of a legal assistant who pleads a cause or argues a case. Most of us don't think of lawyers as comforters. Most of us don't think of lawyers as someone who comes alongside to encourage and to help. We think of them in other terms. No offense, Dan. But... (laughs) We have this word, paraclete, comforter, counselor, helper, legal assistant who pleads a cause or argues a case. And then we see three specific ministries of the Holy Spirit spelled out for us in these next several verses. Look at verse number eight. And when he has come, he will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. This word reprove is a legal term. 
It has to do with convicting. It has to do with showing evidence in order to convince, to present or expose the facts to convince of the truth. So the Holy Spirit shows evidence to a person of his or her sin. The Holy Spirit reproves. He reproves the world of sin. The Holy Spirit convicts. The Holy Spirit shows evidence of man's sinfulness. To the unbeliever, the conviction of the Holy Spirit is a conviction that results in guilt and shame. In order to convince the sinner of his lost condition, of his sinful condition, and to point him to his need for the Savior. To point his or her to their need for salvation. And no one gets saved apart from the work of the Holy Spirit. No one gets saved apart from the word of God. Like a lawyer, in a sense, the Holy Spirit uses the word of God to present the evidence to the unsaved person of his or her sin, of their sinful condition, and of their need for the Savior. So we have the Holy Spirit convicting the unsaved. And we know that the Holy Spirit uses the word of God. He guides us into all truth. And we know from interpreting scripture by scripture that faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. We'll talk about some more of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. But again, as a person trusts Christ as their savior, they are then baptized by the Holy Spirit, placed into immersed into Christ. Baptizo. The spiritual baptism done by the Holy Spirit. Placing of that individual upon their faith and trust in Christ, repenting of their sin, the Holy Spirit places them in Christ. But here we see the conviction ministry of the Holy Spirit. Convicting men of sin. Showing them their sin. Showing them their lost state. Showing them their sinful condition. Presenting that evidence to point them to the Savior, to their need of salvation. What about in the life of the believer? I know that specifically the application and the primary interpretation in verse number 8 is the world. He reproved the world of sin. But what about for the believer? The Holy Spirit convicts the believer. But that conviction is to bring us to a place of repentance where we'll confess our sins. Where we'll forsake our sins so that we can be restored once again into fellowship with God. I'm thankful for the work of the Holy Spirit, not only in my life and getting me right with God and convicting me of my sin. And as a young boy, I was just down in Pensacola, Florida, and we drove right by the little house right there off of campus where I trusted Christ as my Savior. And I'm sitting there in the car with my father-in-law and two of my boys, and I look over at that little house, that little cracker box of a house. I don't know how we live there. And I looked over at that house, and that was where I trusted Christ as my Savior. I heard the gospel as Bob Taylor preached. I heard the gospel in my family devotions. My mom and dad had me in church from the time I was an infant. I'm thankful for it. And there in that little house, I asked Christ to forgive me my sin and to save me. I became a child of God. That was the conviction of the Holy Spirit in that day as a young child. But I still experience the conviction of the Holy Spirit. I'm thankful for it. I remember dealing with 
young people, and as a principal, even as a pastor, dealing with people, there are times where I wondered if the Holy Spirit was even present in that individual because of the way they were responding. I was wondering if there was any evidence of the Holy Spirit being in that person, if they were genuinely, truly saved because of the way they responded to conviction, to the evidence of their sin, and the fact that they would deny and deny and deny and deny. I begin to wonder if this person even has the Holy Spirit. Because one of the evidences of our salvation is that the Holy Spirit brings conviction in the life of the believer. And we respond to that conviction. I realize we don't always respond the way we should or when we should or how we should. Sometimes it takes a little bit longer than it should for us to finally respond. But we should experience the conviction. And I know that we read in 1 Thessalonians 5 and verse 19 that believers can quench the Spirit. In Ephesians 4 and verse number 30, we read that believers can grieve the Holy Spirit. But there has to be some evidence of the Holy Spirit's work. For someone to be truly born again, they have to at least have fallen under the conviction of the Holy Spirit for their sinfulness and turned to Christ in saving faith, having repented of their sins. In a church that does not preach on sin, that doesn't show the evidence of our sinful condition, but simply pats sinners on their back all the time, and and maybe does a motivational message, Maybe does a yay raw, J-E-S-U-S, let's go out and love Jesus, but never deals with sin and repentance. It never brings the application home where the word of God brings it regarding our sin. If a church, if a ministry doesn't preach on sin, then what's going to happen to the people in the congregation? If a parent never deals with their child's sin in their early ages... If a young child at age of two or three is throwing a temper tantrum hissy fit and is never dealt with for the sin of their response, for the rebellion of their heart that is shown externally, and that kid is affirmed over and over and over and over in their sin, how is that kid ever going to get saved? How is that child ever going to respond to the gospel? They turn 18 and their heart is hard. Now, I'm not saying they can't ever repent, but it's often going to take some very, very hard knocks and some very, very hard consequences of their sin for them to finally repent. Not always, but oftentimes that's what happens. It's important for our children at young ages to see their need for salvation, to be exposed to the word of God regularly and to the gospel, to see our sinful condition, get saved, and then as a believer... To respond to the conviction of the Holy Spirit and get right with God, confess our sins and forsake them. We all have besetting sins. We all have those lures with that bait that is specific for our particular sin that we struggle with. And good fishermen, when they're after certain fish, they look at certain temperatures, they look at certain water, they look at certain atmosphere, I don't know, barometric pressure, I don't know all the things, and they get specific lures, and they go to specific areas, they look for specific waters, and they put the bait, the lure, in that area. 
to catch a fish. And Satan knows, as a roaring lion, walking about, seeking whom he, he may devour. He knows what lure to put out there. That's why we need to have short sin accounts. When we come under conviction of the Holy Spirit, we've got to get it right. When somebody points it out to us that we're in the wrong, we've got to confess it. We've got to get rid of it. We've got to take care of it. Sometimes that's hard. One of the hardest things I've ever done is, and I don't mean this the wrong way, but one of the hardest things I've ever done as a husband, as a father, as a leader of my home, to apologize to my wife. Say, please forgive me. But I have to do it. I have to do it to my own children. I can still remember getting on my knees and looking at a four-year-old child who I just offended and having to get things right because I was under such conviction of the Holy Spirit. I remember being under such conviction my freshman year of college with bitterness in my heart towards some of my high school classmates and here I am struggling with the call to preach, knowing God had called me to preach and struggling because I'm looking at the catalog and I'm seeing two years of Greek and wondering, and how am I ever going to go and preach the gospel if I have bitterness in my heart toward high school classmates and it's hindering my walk with God? And I had to go from that class, as Dr. Hankins taught on Corinthians, I had to go from that class, I had to go back to my room and get on my knees and pour my heart out to God and get right with the Lord. I was under such conviction. That's what the Holy Spirit does. We're thankful for that ministry. If the Holy Spirit, if we did not respond to the Holy Spirit as believers, if we're constantly quenching and grieving the Spirit, woe is us. It's going to affect so many areas of our lives, specifically relationships. So the Holy Spirit's a ministry. He convicts. He reproves men of sin. We also see in verse number 8, and of righteousness. The Holy Spirit convicts the world of righteousness. The only truly righteous one is Christ. And the only way to be truly righteous right before God is to know Christ. So the Holy Spirit convinces man of Christ's righteousness. Paul talks about this in Philippians chapter 3. Remember, Paul if anybody could be saved on their own merits, it would be Paul. That's basically what he says in Philippians 3. He says, if anybody could get saved on their own, by their own works, it would be me. Pharisee of the Pharisees, of the tribe of Benjamin. On and on he went in Philippians 3. And then he comes to verse 9. He says, not having my own righteousness, but the righteousness which is of God through faith. Paul realized his righteousness was filthy rags. How did that happen? The Holy Spirit, the Word of God, brought conviction to his life on that road to Damascus. And he repented of his sin. And then he became clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Not having my own righteousness, he would say. We know from 2 Corinthians 5 and verse number 21 about the righteousness of Christ that's credited to our account. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and verse number 21, we know this verse well. For he hath made him to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. So the Holy Spirit's ministry is pointing to the evidence, to the standard of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Is that not, again, why it's so important that we define Jesus Christ by the word of God? 
Because we are very good in our world today of making up a Jesus who is made in our image. Instead of the Jesus revealed in the word of God, who is the living word of God. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. We need the Jesus of the Bible. There's a lot of antichrists out there. There's a lot of false messiahs that are out there. And there's also well-meaning Christians, evangelicals, who have a wrong view of Jesus. I'm just this way. I know it's a little bit probably strict. But I want my knowledge and view and understanding of Jesus to come from the Word of God. Not by Hollywood, not by media. I want my view, my understanding of Christ to come from the Word of God. And it's so important because we have a culture today that idolizes celebrities. And if, if we're not careful, we will quit looking at the righteousness of Christ and we'll begin to compare ourselves to Christians who are in prominent places or in popular places and be, we can begin to idolize them. We begin to become enamored and we become personality followers. It frustrates me when ministries become so enamored with a person that their whole ministry gets patterned after a certain person. Everything has to be just like that person in their ministry. And sometimes it's well-meaning. Sometimes that person is off on some major areas. I remember as a, as a preacher boy, there was a preacher in town, great preacher. I mean, that, that man can exposit the scripture like, I don't know who. He is incredible. I felt like about that tall sitting in his classes because he was just incredible. But there was a preacher boy who would pattern his sermons in every way after this preacher. So we would have pulpit speech class and we'd have to practice our sermons. And we had to practice them so many times and we got graded for our outline and everything. And then afterward, we had to watch ourselves on video. That was the Next hardest part, because after we watched ourselves on video, then we had to face the professor. (laughs) But anyway, this preacher boy, I would listen to him outside the dorm room. And he was preaching exactly like this preacher there in town. I mean, even down to the voice inflections. He was even trying to take his voice and mimic the voice of this preacher. And I thought, you know, it's good this man's a godly man, but he doesn't even want that. He doesn't want just a clone of himself. We have to be careful that we don't just become personality followers. We have to be constantly pointed to the righteousness of Christ. For an unsaved individual, they are constantly having to be pointed to the righteousness of Christ. They fail as we all as unsaved sinners have to come to the reality That we fall short of the glory of God. We have transgressed God's law. And the Holy Spirit is pointing to the righteousness of Christ, to God's standard, and we all fall short. But after we get saved, we have to keep coming back to the righteousness of Christ so that we can live a holy life. Be holy, for I am holy. How do we know what holiness looks like? By Christ. 
who's revealed in God's word, which is the living word. We have to keep coming back to the righteousness of Christ, who he is, not the culture's definition of Jesus, not definitely not Time Magazine's definition of Jesus. Just wait, just wait. It might, only, it might be out on the displays already, but it will be if it's not already in a couple of weeks because Easter's coming. And there will be another front cover magazine, the real Jesus. Who is Jesus? Right? We see the magazines. And I want to go to that magazine rack and I want to walk through that line. I want to say, here's the real Jesus, the word of God. We need to keep declaring the righteousness of Jesus Christ and living according to his righteousness as declared in God's word. And then we see the Holy Spirit's ministry. He not only reproves the world of sin and of righteousness, but also of judgment, of judgment. And we read here of sin because they believe not on me, of righteousness because I go to my father and you see me no more, and of judgment because the prince of this world is judged. The prince of this world is obviously referring to Satan and the fact that he will be judged. If Satan's going to be judged, then that means no one is going to escape God's judgment. And I don't know about you, but I'm thankful that there is a judgment seat. I'm thankful that I will be at the first judgment, having been saved by the grace of God and only of him. I will be at the judgment seat of Christ, where I'm not judged for my sin, but I will have an accounting and a report and a stewardship of my faithfulness and rewarded accordingly, which means what I'm doing right now and how I live right now matters. But I'm glad that there's a judgment seat because sin is dealt with and Satan is dealt with once and for all. We've been studying this on Sunday nights in our series on prophecy. And we can go to Revelation chapter 20 and we read there in that great chapter in Revelation 20. And I saw, I'm sorry, verse number Nine, and they went up on the breadth of the earth and compassed the camp of the saints about and the beloved city and fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. And the devil that deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are and shall be tormented day and night forever and ever. There is an end to sin. Glory be to God. We don't want anyone to go to hellfire and brimstone. But we understand that is a reality that there will be some who reject Christ, and that is where they must pay the penalty for their sin for all eternity. That is a hard truth. That is a sobering truth. And that's why we are motivated as ambassadors to bring the ministry of reconciliation, to preach the gospel and give the gospel, because we don't want anybody to go there, especially not our children or our grandchildren, our loved ones. But it is a ministry of the Holy Spirit to point man to the fact that there is a judgment. And we're thankful for that judgment. As hard as it is to understand that truth and to accept that truth and live in that truth. But think about if sin were never dealt with. If sin just continued. If sin just continued for 
an unending era of time, how miserable we would be. How miserable this earth and this universe would be. Creation would continue to groan and there would not be, I don't care what all these climate changers say, there will not be a utopia that will be advanced and brought into existence by man and all of his policies and all of his politics and all of his laws and all of his restrictions and regulations and the redistribution of wealth and everything else. Man is not going to bring a utopia. Man is a sinner. And the Holy Spirit points to the fact that there's a judgment. It is appointed unto man once to die. It is appointed to men once to die. We read in Hebrews 9 and verse 27. But after this, the judgment. The Holy Spirit convinces the world that there is a judgment day coming. And Satan himself will one day stand before God and receive his due. And if he is not going to escape, the, if he is not going to escape judgment, then how can we? So we are brought to this point as we come to a close this morning. To the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Oh, there's so much more. We'll get to, Lord willing, next week. As we get down to verses 12 through 15. And we see the ministry of the Holy Spirit in other ways. But we see very clearly the scriptures teach us that the Holy Spirit convicts, convinces men, the world, of sin. And of righteousness. And of judgment. I don't know what the world, excuse me, I don't know what the word of God is convicting you or me about this morning. I know what God has done in my heart up to this point in preparing this message and some conviction he's brought on my life. And I'm thankful for the accountability of the word of God. I'm thankful for the ministry of the Holy Spirit that rebukes me on a regular basis. But how are we going to respond this morning? If you're unsaved, will you turn from your sin? And look to the only one who can save, Jesus Christ. Turn from your sin and turn to him in saving faith as a believer. Is there something? Is there some unfinished business? Is there something that God is convicting you or me of that we need to respond to this morning? That we need to get right? That we need to get right with him? and we need to get right with someone else? The Holy Spirit has a ministry. And we're thankful for it. May we respond properly to the Holy Spirit's ministry in our hearts today. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the truth of the word of God, for the ministry of the Holy Spirit that convinces, that convicts, that reproves, that shows our sinful condition, shows the righteousness of Christ and how we fall short, but how we can be clothed in the righteousness of Christ. We're thankful for the ministry of the Holy Spirit, even in regards to judgment and how that helps us and our daily walk with you. Lord, if there's someone here who is unsaved, may today be the day of their salvation where they'll turn from their sin and turn to you in saving faith. Lord, if there's believers here who need to get things right with you or right with someone else, we ask that, Lord, you will do a work. That, Lord, we will take care of those matters between us and our Savior and also between us and someone else. Lord, that we might be effective servants for you, a testimony in this dark world, a light, for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Lord, do your work even now as we sing this closing hymn, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Jake's going to come and lead us.
in hymn number 478, Only Trust.